Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? All right, so I know we're doing this episode on inventions, and I wanted to give you an update. I'm not giving up on my invention. (laughs) Tell me about that again. You know, the pudding truck. We talked about this, Mango. (laughs) Pudding truck. (laughs) So this is the one where you take one of those cement trucks with this huge spinny things on the back and fill it with pudding, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've had this vision for years. And one day, I mean, this is probably when I retire, but I'm determined to do this. I don't know how much it costs to buy one of these trucks new, but we'll we'll figure that out in the future. (laughs) But I'm determined to make this thing work. And, you know, I'm planning to compete with the ice cream truck. I mean, go head to head with the ice cream truck. I'm going to drive around neighborhoods. But, you know, instead, the pudding will come pouring down that cement chute. Kids will just hold their hands out and the pudding (laughs) will just like rush into them. And the people are going to love it. I've just, you know, I've got to figure out how to pass the health code stuff first. But but again, I'll figure that out later. (laughs) Yeah, those minor details. So I I know it's brilliant, but it seems like a bit of a stretch to call it an invention, especially when I think about all the cool stuff we read about this week. I mean, I I certainly don't want to crush your dreams. You should should definitely pursue this. But we should probably also talk about some of the most important inventions that shaped the modern economy. What do you say? All right. Well, one day I think you'll understand more, Mango. But all right, let's get started. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And the man on the other side of the soundproof glass who's giving us not one, but two thumbs up, thanks, Tristan, (laughs) is our producer, Tristan McNeil. 
And today we're looking at some of the revolutionary ideas and breakthrough innovations that have helped make our economy what it is today. I mean, it's kind of crazy when you stop and think about how quickly humanity's gone from, you know, scattered nomadic tribes to this current information-based age. And of course, a few things have happened in between, but it's pretty amazing to think about all this progress. Even the concept of money as, you know, what it looks like, what it can buy for us, all that has changed along the way too. And all this rapid evolution is due in no small part to some very unexpected consequences. You know, the surprising, often life-changing impacts of a few key people and ideas and inventions. And you know, so that's what we're planning to cover today. Yeah, and we should definitely say up front that today's episode is a little different than most. The theme and content is directly inspired by a new book out this month called 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. And our guest is actually the best-selling author of that book, Tim Harford. So Tim's a rare cripple threat. He's an author, a broadcaster, and an economist. Wow, so that's intimidating. <laughs> so we're super excited to talk to him and see what juicy details he has about, about the world economy. Yeah, and it, it probably sounds a little strange to some of our listeners to hear us talking about the juicy details. I mean, it sounds a little strange to me, to be honest. Yeah. So uh, you mean the fact that economics can be interesting? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people assume economics is this extremely complex and therefore unapproachable science. And, you know, people feel like it's too abstract of a concept to truly wrap your head around and make it real to us, you know, for us to really understand it. And it has this reputation of being kind of boring or tedious, and mm -hmm. some people even call it the dismal science for this reason. Yeah, which is true. A lot of people call it that because economics can lead to some pretty upsetting outcomes, like the idea that robot labor will one day supplant the need for human workers. But right. I actually read about how that nickname originated, and the funny thing is, it really points to the merits of economics rather than its drawbacks. Oh, really? I haven't I haven't read this. What, what did you read? Yeah, so, so according to this article in The Atlantic, Thomas Carlyle, a Scottish writer and philosopher, called Economics the Dismal Science when he was writing in defense of the slave trade in the West Indies. Hmm. And he was actually arguing that white plantation owners should be able to force black plantation workers to be their slaves. But uh, to Carlisle's chagrin, he wasn't able to justify this by looking at the economics. Apparently, like, supply and demand are more in favor of leaving people alone rather than forcing them into do labor. Oh, wow. I, I don't think I'd heard that. So, so Carlisle called economics a dismal science because it wouldn't back up slavery? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And, and he railed against political economy, calling it a dreary, desolate, and indeed quite abject and distressing science, what we might call the dismal science. Huh. Yeah, so if you really trace the term back to its root, it's a nickname that connects economics with morality. And it's also this argument against racism and slavery. Like, Carlyle considered that to be a failing of economic thought, but obviously for any decent person, that's a really good thing. Oh, that's pretty cool that that's where that came from. So the dismal science is actually a tool for making the world less dismal. Mm -hmm, exactly. So, well, well, why don't we go ahead and talk about one of the big inventions and, and one that also made life less dismal, especially during the hot summers. We're talking about air conditioning. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know we all know air conditioning was a big deal, but sometimes you do have to stop and, and really consider the impact of an invention like this. Yeah, so I'd say air conditioning is one of those inventions whose impact is always staring you right in the face, yet you never really quite make the connection. And and I remember hearing how much like how much less legislation was passed by the founding fathers and, and future congresses because of the summer heat. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, just think about skyscrapers. Like, they're these beautiful bastions of finance and commerce, but without air conditioning, we'd never be able to occupy those buildings. And people on the higher floors, they'd be baked alive. You know, it's weird. I had never really 
really thought about that, but that's a good point. And air conditioning is definitely good for all kinds of business. I mean, actually, one when you were saying skyscrapers, I was thinking about shopping malls. I mean, there's no way those would exist. No one would want to walk around in them because it would just be too hot in there. But they were a huge part of the American economy for decades. Yeah, and even if you look at online shopping, like, remember, computers stop working altogether if they get too hot. So really, without air conditioning, we wouldn't have the vast server farms that make online shopping and and really the Internet itself possible. Yeah, that's very true. And it's hard to imagine cities in the nation's sunbelt, you know, ever of really emerging without air conditioning. I mean, just think about how hot it's been here this summer in Atlanta. I can't imagine there's any way... You would have made the move to Atlanta if we didn't have air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. But, but when I looked at it, like all the states in the Sun Belt, so there's Georgia, but also like Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Southern California. It's amazing to think they all experienced population booms during the second half of the 20th century. You know, when air conditioning became commonplace in people's homes and offices. So they, it's a boom, but like how big of a boom are we talking? Well, pretty big. I mean, between 1950 and 2000, the Sunbelt's share of the national population shot up from 28% to 40%. Oh, wow. That's pretty huge. Mm-hmm. All right. So the economic effects of air conditioning are definitely coming into focus now. But I want to back up a little bit. I mean, what's the story behind air conditioning, you know, the the origins of it? I know Tim included it on his list, but... There have got to be some good, you know, background stories there. Absolutely. So finding a way to cool down in hot weather has been on humanity's mind forever. And and in fact, there was this eccentric Roman emperor named Elagabalus who, who sent a thousand slaves into the mountains to fetch huge amounts of snow, which he then had them pile up in his garden. And, and that way, it was just when the wind kicked up, the cooler air would blow inside his palace. Wow. So it took a thousand people to try to cool this one dude, <laughs> Elagabalus. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure that I, I remember that name. I would have to imagine that would not be easy to implement, though, on like a wider scale, though, right? <laughs> Definitely not. Though The concept was revived in the 19th century by an entrepreneur from Boston named Frederick Tudor. In winter, Tudor harvested blocks of ice from frozen New England lakes. Then he'd pack the blocks in sawdust, which served as insulation, and, and he'd ship them to warmer regions in the summer. And the practice grew so popular that a mild New England winter, like, it would cause this panic all over, and people would worry about a potential ice famine next summer. But my favorite revival of this Roman emperor's methods happened in 1881, after President Garfield took a bullet from a would-be assassin. He had naval engineers construct this makeshift cooling device to keep him comfortable while he slowly died that summer. Oh, it's weird. so sad. But following the Romans' lead, the device cooled the room down by blowing air over a cold material. So, you know, Garfield was super smart, and, and these naval officers are bright, and they got cotton sheets that had been soaked in ice water, and that's how they created the coldness. It's the best the Navy could come up. I mean, I have to be honest, that doesn't seem that impressive. (laughs) Well, it's kind of impressive. But uh, um, just like with the Emperor's Snow Mountain, it was incredibly wasteful and impractical. And Garfield's caretakers supposedly went through half a million pounds of ice in just two months. Oh, wow. That is insane. All right. Well, why why don't you tell us how proper air conditioning then became a reality? I I appreciated all that background information. But let's talk about more modern form. This is not how it happens right now, is it? No, I don't think so. Okay. People aren't carrying snow back. (laughs) Actually, yeah. But before I do that, I did want to go on a little tangent about oh, how smart Garfield was. Okay. Like, he was this president that could write Latin with one hand and Greek with the other. Um, but he was also too smart for his own good. Like, you know, when he caught that bullet, he had doctors use a metal detector to locate it, which is really a smart idea. But they forgot to account for the bed springs under mm-hmm. the bed. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. so the doctors went on all these exploratory missions, like trying to find things they thought were the bullet. But it was actually just this bed <laughs> I just thought he was full of bullets. <laughs> 
<laughs> nice but, tangent. That's a good one. But back to air conditioning. So. Okay, I don't trust you. <laughs> the air conditioning we know today got its start in 1902, following the much-needed advent of electricity. And, and uh, surprisingly, the invention of AC had nothing to do with making people more comfortable. It was actually invented by Willis Carrier. He's this young engineer at a heating company called Buffalo Forge, and mm-hmm. it was this big printing company had actually tasked Buffalo Forge with creating a system to help control the heat and humidity in their factories. So they needed something to help prevent paper from wrinkling and from their ink from running down the paper like during the printing process. And so Carrier was put in charge of the project, and, and he quickly figured out that circulating air over coils that were chilled by compressed ammonia, that that could help keep the humidity at a constant 55%. And as you might guess, this thrilled the printers to no end. Wow, that's interesting that it really wasn't about people at first. So so how did this transition happen, you know, going from printing factories to people's homes? Well, it it was kind of slow because Carrier's original model was pretty massive. And at first, the company just stuck to the other industrial clients, like, you know, other places that have been plagued by humidity. Uh, you, You could think about, like, flour mills or even, like, the Gillette Corporation was a client. The moisture from humidity was just as bad for razor blades as it was for paper. But um, still, Carrier knew his invention had wider applications. So four years later, in 1906, he started looking into possibilities for adding AC to public buildings. But instead of government buildings or offices, he decided to target theaters, which traditionally shut down during the summer months. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. You can imagine all these packed bodies and one room, no windows, no AC. I mean, it's definitely not a great recipe for getting people in there. Mm-hmm, not at all. And and especially considering the best option for cooling a theater at the time was the way Tudor used to do it. Like, some theaters had used large fans to blow air over ice and help cool the audience. I mean, the downside was, you forget about this, that pollution was on the rise, and especially in New England's lakes. So, so the damp air from the melting ice... It sometimes made the whole place reek. And so, uh, um, so, so Carrier's new device, which, which he called the Weathermaker, was this obvious upgrade. You know, I mean, I've heard this before about people's first exposure to air conditioning being in the 1920s, you know, back when movie theaters started popping up all over the country. But it actually never occurred to me to think about the economic upheaval that would have occurred here. I mean, uh, you know, look at where we are now with summer blockbusters raking in billions every year and, you know, figure a lot of this has to do with people wanting to get a break from the heat. Absolutely. And and when home model ACs started being produced en masse, like in, in the post-war 1950s, they completely changed the way we live. And the boom was insane. So I just looked up these figures and I saw that there were 74,000 units uh, sold in 1948. Versus a million units sold in 1953. Oh, wow. So that's like a crazy economic boom. But, you know, the thing I always think when I think of economic booms, like I've got to mention this, is the mini golf craze. In the 1920s, they put like one course on a rooftop. And in four years, there were 150 courses on rooftops. Wow. Like, but, uh, Actually, there's a course on the roof of our building here. I know. One of the few remaining, I guess. Yeah. So it's uh, impressive, but uh, but the AC is way more practical. Wow. It's, it's interesting to think about. And I know we want to talk about a lot more inventions. But first, I feel like we need to get Tim Harford himself on the line to, to give us a rundown of some of his favorite inventions. 
thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM, let's create. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. So our guest today is an award-winning journalist, economist, and broadcaster, triple threat, as we mentioned earlier in the episode. He's the author of the best-selling The Undercover Economist, as well as Messy. But today we're going to be talking to him about this terrific book that we've been speaking about all episode long, and that's 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. Tim Harford, welcome to Part-Time Genius. It's great to be on the show. Thank you. Now, I know that um, when we asked you to come on the show, you said that you would only appear if both Mangesh and I were on the line. And, and, I, and I've got bad news. This, uh, this hurricane, now tropical storm, has thrown us for a bit of a loop. So I, I appreciate your willingness still to come on, despite what we'd agreed to earlier. It's, I, I felt it was the least I could do. Although, you see, my familiarity with American geography is, is not as hot as it might be. So for all I know, you, you guys are actually speaking in Alaska and there aren't any hurricanes there. But in all seriousness, I hope that um, that uh, you and all your colleagues are safe. Thank you very much. Yeah, everyone has done fine. Our, our uh, studios are in Atlanta. And for our listeners, to let you in on a little bit of a secret, we don't always record our interviews on the same days as the rest of our episode. And so our offices have been closed for a couple of days, but everyone seems to be okay. And so our thoughts are obviously with all of those affected uh, by Hurricane Irma. Uh, over the past few days in Florida and everywhere else. But let's get started to talk about this book that we've really fallen in love with, 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. One of the things I love about it is that even though it's really structured as this really kind of a massive list, and we love lists, there's still such a terrific narrative quality throughout the book, and you feel like you can follow these stories. And I was just wondering, you know, how much time it took to try to pull this off, because you could just say, here are 50 inventions and facts about them. 
but you really took such great efforts to weave in such terrific narrative through all of this. I was just curious to hear about the process of writing this book. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. I mean, one of the great things about um, the way that uh, I wrote the book was um, there's also a BBC series based on the book, and, and it's it's nine-minute episodes, and each episode has got to stand alone because somebody might just tune in, they might just listen to that one story, and there's no context for anything. And so you've you've got to make the story work. And nine minutes is about 1,100, 1,200 words. It's long enough to say some interesting stuff, but it's it's never long enough to say everything you might want to say. And so you've got to pick a good hook and uh, drive towards a particular point. And there's loads and loads that, that you always leave out. And I found it actually incredibly fun to write like that. I had never really quite written a book in that style before, but it worked, it worked really nicely. So, yeah. Um, yeah, the story is always the thing. Well, it was terrific. And part of the fun is, is seeing chapters that you don't always realize just how entertaining or interesting they're going to be. Just, just as an example, you know, a chapter on concrete where you're talking about the influence that it had. And, and I have to admit, when I first saw you'd listed concrete as one of these inventions that had shaped the modern economy, I really thought it was going to be about, I don't know, maybe communist structures and Edison. But, you know, you talk about how concrete is influencing education. So I, I was hoping maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and, and also why you find concrete so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I should say Khrushchev, uh, former Soviet premier, did once give a two-hour lecture on the subject of concrete and what good Soviet concrete should be like. So <laughs> it's, there is there is some Soviet brutalism in there. But um, yeah, so I began with a great story that I heard from the development economist Charles Kenny about using concrete, ready-mixed concrete, as an anti-poverty program in rural Mexico about 15 years ago. So um, development organizations and governments are always trying to figure out, well, if we throw some money at the problem of poverty, is there something we can do? Maybe we should give people cash. Maybe we should give people vaccinations. Maybe we should provide schools. This particular poverty program, anti-poverty program, said we are going to provide ready-mixed concrete. We are going to drive through these low-income townships right up to people's doors. Obviously, it's it's prearranged who you're going to go to, and then you, they open the door and you just pour the ready-mixed concrete from the the mixer lorry, the mixer truck, straight into the front room. And the, the people who live there have been given instructions as to how to smooth it out and look after it themselves, and they just wait and give it a few hours and it cures. And then you have a concrete floor and the, the truck drives off to the next household. And it turns out to be fantastically effective as an anti-poverty intervention because these floors are then much more uh, clean they're much more hygienic in particular there's a problem with uh, parasitic worms that the kids will pick up through their their bare feet and they make them sick um they they miss school put the concrete floor in and this problem largely goes away and so the whole health of the household the mental health of the parents the physical health of the children all improves and it's incredibly cheap and um, so I was just trying to get people to look at this really unromantic substance in a different way. If we use it wisely, it can do a tremendous amount of good. Another invention that you talk about and something that we actually covered a bit in an episode we did a few weeks ago on Ikea and the secrets of Ikea. I'm, I'm curious to hear from, you know, including the Billy bookcase in this list of 50 inventions, 
you know, what makes it so special and worthy of being on a list like this? I'm totally going to download that episode, by the way. That sounds great. <laughs> but the reason I put the Billy Bookcase in was because I wanted people to think about what innovation looks like in a modern economy. We get very fixated on certain um, particularly sexy, eye-catching innovations. So things like the latest iPhone, um, uh, Google algorithms, big data. And actually, a lot of the innovation that that makes the modern economy what it is, is very simple. It's unromantic. It's all about process. It's all about shaving off a bit of cost here, a bit of cost there, getting the supply chains working a bit more smoothly, maybe trying to get the logistics, reduce transport costs. It's it's not sexy. It's not exciting. But it is the reason why the, you know, the, the dollar in your wallet goes so much further. You know, for an hour's work, you can buy much more than you could 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago. And a lot of that is just this very uh, straightforward, unromantic, unheralded logistical innovation. And the Billy Bookcase mm-hmm. stands as the representative of, of all of that kind of stuff. That and, of course, the shipping container, which gets, gets its own chapter. I was curious to hear if you if you had a favorite overlooked uh, older invention, you know, maybe something older than, you know, 50, 60 years that uh, that maybe you didn't realize would be quite so interesting when you dived in. Yeah, there is one, uh, one that I have a really soft spot for. I mean, the, while I was writing the book, I went all the way back to the plow, which is maybe five, six, seven thousand years old and bang up to date uh, inventions like uh, the seller feedback mechanism used by Uber. Mm-hmm. But the invention that I have a really soft spot for is, well, let me keep you hanging for a second. Everybody <laughs> said, as I was working on the book, you've got to do the Gutenberg press. Uh, right. It transformed uh, Europe, put Europe at the center of world civilization, gave us the textbook, the newspaper, the novel, mass literacy, the Reformation is completely transformative. But when you look at the products of the Gutenberg Press, these beautiful Gutenberg Bibles, you have to ask what they're printed on. And right. most of them, not all of them, but most of them are printed on paper. Mm-hmm. And the printing press doesn't make economic sense without paper. I mean, for, as a practical matter, you can print on animal skin parchment, but the, you have to kill 250,000 sheep. Literally, I, I, I counted it all, off, all <laughs> up. You have to kill 250,000 sheep in order to get enough parchment to do an economically viable print run, say sort of four or 5,000 copies of something. So you need to mass produce paper before it makes any sense whatsoever to mass produce writing. The Chinese invented paper 2,000 years ago. It moved to the Middle East, the Islamic world, um, at six or 700 years AD. They have mass literacy in that society and the Europeans just were not interested. The idea that you have a cheap material to write your Bibles on is like mm-hmm. saying we're going to have a, a cheap metal to make crowns out of. It, it right. felt like you were <laughs> violating this this sacred thing. So nobody cared. And it was only when Europeans started getting more a more sophisticated commercial culture, so contracts, accounts, receipts, that sort of thing, that you start getting this demand for a cheap writing surface. And that's when paper finally starts to take off maybe the 13th century. Uh, and then shortly after that, you get the Gutenberg Press. Wow, that's incredible. 
You've taught us so many things, but we can't let you leave without putting you to the test. And even though Mangesh, the author of many of our quizzes, is unable to be here, he did send me a quiz to excellent, uh, excellent to, to test you with today. And it's called Real Invention from the U.S. Patent Office or Something We Made Up. Okay, so, okay. so what, what I'll do is I'll give you a ridiculous invention and you have to tell me whether it's something uh, that's actually in the U.S. Patent Office or something we just made up. Simple as that. You ready to go? Okay, go for it. All right. Question one. Jet propulsion golf clubs. This gas-powered high-pressure water pump and tank forces water through a hose and into your hollow club. When you're ready to swing, just press the red button and hang on, and highly pressurized water shoots out the back of your club and propels your swing forward. Is this something that was actually at the U.S. Patent Office or something we made up? I know there's some truly ridiculous patents, but I'm going to guess that you made that one up. We actually did not make that one up. That is a true one. That that one did, in fact, happen. So, all right. Got a chance to make up for it. Number two, the aquarium vest. If you love your fishbowl but hate leaving it at home on walks, the aquarium vest is for you. Just fill it up with water, plop in your fish, and get out and go. Okay, that's got to be made up. It, it is made up. Yeah, good gauge on that one. Okay, question number three. The banana suitcase. No one likes a bruised banana. That's why the banana suitcase offers a protective plastic case for carrying a single banana around. Something tells me I have actually seen that invention. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I've seen that invention. And so I'm, uh, and if the invention exists, the patent probably also exists. So I'm going to say that that is real. You are absolutely right. It was patented in 2003. Okay, here we go. So the last question is the pogo stick weed whacker. I have to ask, are you familiar with the pogo stick? Is that something that exists I'm, in the UK? I'm familiar with the pogo stick. My daughter, okay. in fact, has a pogo stick, but she does not have a weed whacker. So I was going to say, yeah, you could you could put her to even more use. Let's say, the description here is, if you want to put the fun back into thankless gardening chores, the pogo stick weed whacker is for you. With every bounce, a monofilament line spins out, helping to edge grass and trim weeds. Is this something with a real patent or something we just made up? A monofilament line. So it's it, it until you described it, I was going to say, yeah, it's real. But now I can't possibly imagine how it could work. <laughs> so I'm going to guess it's made up. And you are absolutely right. It is something that we just made up. And I believe that makes you three out of four, which wins you our top prize, which is a note to your mom or boss singing your praises. So, Tim, congratulations for the win here. Oh, that, that's it's real. It's real. That's <laughs> that's a that's a good time. That's right. Well, I hope all of our listeners will check out 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. It really is a terrific book. And Tim Harford, thanks so much for joining us on Part-Time Genius. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. 
Learn more at ibm.com slash governance. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about a few of the surprising inventions that have shaped the modern world economy. So, Mango, before the break, you mentioned how air conditioning paved the way for an economy where movies and television are big business. And so now I want to talk about an invention that forever changed the music industry, and that is the gramophone. <laughs> well, I just feel like this is a tough sell. Like, <laughs> air conditioners aren't going anywhere, but the, the gramophone? Oh, that's like, going to be big. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it had an effect on the economy at a time, but, like, that feels like a long time ago. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get to the lingering impact of the gramophone, but but I do want to give you a sense of why it was such a game changer in the first place. And to do that, we've got to get acquainted with one Miss Elizabeth Billington. Have you <laughs> How heard do you of? do? That's right. Are you familiar with her? No, not at all. All right. Well, over 200 years ago, well before recorded sound was a thing, she was actually the highest paid solo singer in the world. Some even said she was the most talented English soprano of all time, and yet nobody knows who she is huh. now. In fact, when the composer Joseph Haydn saw a painting that showed Billington being serenaded by a choir of angels... He actually got irritated with this, and he said the angels should be listening to her. <laughs> God, I don't think of Haydn as such a super fan. It's yeah, kind of yeah. Well, he was, definitely had some <laughs> steep competition even for, for that as well. I mean, outside the concert halls, Billington was every bit as famous. There was even this scandalous biography written about her. So it sounds like a lot of the, you know, the modern-day celebrities that we would think of. And so just like with today's pop stars, the public went wild for her offstage annex, you know, prompting a very pricey bidding war for her performances. This was between London's top opera houses. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm sure Elizabeth appreciated the payday, but so you, you've got to help me out. Uh, what does a singer who predates recorded sound have to do with the gramophone? All right. Well, you know, so Tim uses her story to help underscore the different levels of success a singer could attain before and after an artist was able to produce recordings of their songs. So in Billington's case, you know, the most she ever made in a year was the equivalent of about a million dollars today. I mean, can you even imagine trying to live on only a million dollars? Just bless her heart, as Mamaw would say, you know? Well, it definitely doesn't sound like a small sum, but I, I'm sure it's nowhere near what today's musicians make. No, it's true. I, I was looking at the list from Forbes, and the highest-paid solo singer in 2015 was this guy named Elton John. I don't know if you've, 
you're familiar not, with this Elton John them. gentleman, but he uh, reportedly netted $100 million that year. It, actually, it's crazy <laughs> to imagine that in 2015, Elton John 2015. still <laughs> making $100 million a year. All right, 2016, this one won't be a surprise. Can you guess who this probably was? Mm. Taylor Swift. Oh, she pulled sense. in $170 million, making her actually not just the highest paid musician, but the highest paid celebrity of any kind. What you're saying, though, is the huge disparity between Billington's take and Taylor Swift's is because of the gramophone? Well, I mean, sort of. So nearly 60 years after Billington died, there was this economist named Alfred Marshall, and he was taking stock of how the electric telegraph had drastically affected the world's top industrialists. And so basically, you know, he was saying that the rapid communication of telegraphs gave success businessmen an even bigger field to operate in. So, you know, now they weren't just limited to where they were from, but they could make money in Europe or Australia or wherever. And, and so Marshall recognized that the new technology wouldn't benefit the cream of the crop in other professional fields. So, you know, say the performing arts. And so Marshall wrote, the number of persons who can be reached by a human voice is strictly limited. So Billington's earning power was capped by the fact that she could only give so many performances and, and only so many people could fit into a concert hall at one time, which makes sense. But, but Marshall's right. Like, the telegraph isn't going to help with that. Sure. So enter the gramophone or, or, or actually enter the phonograph. And this was the first machine that could both record and reproduce the human voice. Right. So that's one of Edison's inventions, the one that used like wax cylinders or whatever instead of discs. Right, right. So Edison patented this in 1877. And this was just a couple years after Marshall's musings on the limitation of the human voice. And it wasn't long after that that people realized the real economic potential of this invention you know, namely the ability to record the best singers and sell their recordings. So here's what I don't understand. Like, why are we talking about the gramophone when we should be talking about the phonograph? Well, because patience here, I'm going to get to it. <laughs> because revolutionary as it was, the phonograph had some considerable weaknesses. I refuse to believe that. <laughs> so not only was the sound quality of its cylinders poor, they also couldn't be mass produced. And a performance could only be captured on a maximum of three or four phonographs at once. And so that means that even if a singer wanted to exhaust their voice by singing the same song 50 times in a day, they'd still only have 200 recordings to show for this trouble. Actually, you want to know something weird? What's up? I actually have one of these in my house. This is one of my favorite things I've ever owned. My grandfather, he was an antique dealer, and he had gotten one of these. It was called an Edison Amberol, and it's got these wax cylinders. And I kind of get it, maybe why it didn't catch on. Do you want to hear one of these? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Okay, so check this one out. This one's called um, I Don't Want to Get Well, and it's about a man that goes off to war, gets injured, he's being cared for, and then, of course, he falls in love with a nurse and doesn't want to get well. And I worried about him night and day. Are you getting well with what I wrote? And this is what he answered in his note. I don't Yeah, I think it's uh, it's due for a remix. But, right. uh, but the phonograph expanded the number of ears that could be reached by a human voice, but not nearly as much as the gramophone. Yeah, I mean, it was only with Emil Berliner's invention of the gramophone in 1887 that true mass production became possible. You know, the reason being that Berliner's recording machine used these flat zinc discs to hold the recordings. And so, 
you know, these were suddenly portable and stackable and easier and cheaper. And you could produce these in large numbers and much more so than the phonograph cylinders. And, and they sounded better, too. Oh, man. So think of how much more dough Billington could have made if, if the gramophone had been invented like 80 years earlier. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, so much more. I mean, she would have been one of the big winners of this breakthrough, you know, much like the top industrialist that Alfred uh, Marshall lauded before. And, and, you know, still, this is something that Tim also points out in the book several times, that every impactful invention, it creates both economic winners and economic losers. And it's something that hmm. you don't often stop to think about. So in this case, you know, thinking about recorded sound, the losers were actually what were called as these these journeyman singers or these lesser known B-level acts who actually did pretty well for themselves when choices were limited. And let's say one of Billington's concerts was already sold out. But as Tim puts it, when you can listen to the best performers in the world at home, why pay to hear a merely competent act in person? You know, so Thomas Edison's phonograph led the way towards this winner-take-all dynamic in the industry. And so the top performers went from earning like Billington to much more like Elton John. And then these slightly less good performers went from a pretty comfortable living, actually, to really struggling to pay their bills. And so these these gaps in quality became these huge gaps in income. That's fascinating to think about. So the B-level performers still had the same skill set, but suddenly it's worth a whole lot less. And, and I wonder if that's changed much now with digital formats like MP3s. Because like for a lot of people, they either buy new music like that or, or they simply stream it online for free. And it seems like there might be fewer ways to make Make money off music recordings now without the struggle for sales. Maybe a bigger variety of musicians get a chance to shine. Uh, well, I mean, it's a nice thought, but the, Tim also covers this and, and talks about the fact that, you know, the inequality between big and small musical acts is actually still pretty much in full effect. And in fact, I thought this statistic was really interesting. The top 1% of artists make more than five times more money than the bottom 95% put wow. together. So it, it's pretty staggering. And the catch is that all these profits aren't coming from mass-produced recordings anymore. They're coming from live concerts. Which is crazy because it, it's like we've gone full circle now, right? Like from Billington's days to live performances being back on top. Yeah, you know, except those lucrative concert tours are driven by demand that sparked from these recordings. So it's still a huge part of it. And and that whole economic system, for better or worse, it owes a huge debt of gratitude to the gramophone. See, like how we finally <laughs> came full circle with that. And I, I guess we owed a debt, too, since, since we're podcast hosts. So, so thank you, gramophone. <laughs> That's very polite of you. <laughs> Okay, so, so we've looked at two biggies, and, and one thing they have in common, besides being economic shapers, is, is that they're both physical products. But there are also a fair amount of inventions that are totally conceptual or abstract. So what do you say we give those ideas their due? All right, well, the conceptual inventions were, were definitely some of my favorites from this book. You know, for example, the cold chain. And have you ever heard of the cold chain? <laughs> no. I had not really thought, known it as this term, but it actually is pretty interesting to think about. This is, this is the term for the global, you know, temperature controlled supply system that keeps all these perishable goods at low temperatures while they're being shipped and stored around the world. So, so think about the fact that, you know, we wouldn't be able to transport blood or drugs or vaccines without them going bad in transit if we didn't have some way to keep them consistently cold or, you know, safely ship fish or meat for more than a day or two away from where they're packaged or even think about things like 
fruits, you know, bananas, mm-hmm. pineapples, all these things that get to our local grocery stores. None of these things would be possible and as, as far as getting them to us without the cold chain. I know. It's, it's so weird that we get bananas like completely yellow. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. But but the cold chain is pretty special. And, and I like how it isn't the invention of any one person. Like instead, it's this amazing result of like a bunch of different people in different countries on different continents. Right. And they're all meeting this like need in society and, and stepping up to meet it, like whatever they can. I mean, just think about it, like how it breaks down, like an engineer in France builds a ship with an onboard refrigerator system. And uh, and then a mechanic in Cincinnati starts outfitting trucks with a system of his own. And right. little by little, it's all linked together. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's one of the most influential inventions of the last century. And so, you know, the full chain came together, really, I guess it was in the late 1930s around that time. And it's odd to think of how even things like World War II might have been completely different without it. Definitely. But, you know, there was one abstract invention I wanted to mention that's even newer than the cold chain. And Tim's book covers things like uh, insurance and intellectual property. But one of my favorite entries was on seller feedback. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I thought that was an, an incredible section of that. So this stuff that helps you determine whether that eBay listing is too good to be true or whether your Uber driver can be trusted or things like this. Exactly. And we don't really think of those star-based ranking systems and 100-character reviews as these, like, influencers of the economy, but but maybe we should. So So why would you say that? Well, Tim describes seller feedback as this necessary component of online platforms that offer what's called, quote, collaborative consumption. You know, I've heard that term thrown around recently. I feel like it's one of these, and there's a bunch of these. I mean, it's like crowd-based capitalism and the sharing economy. That's another big one I feel like I hear Mm -hmm. over and over. I guess, I mean, it feels like they're all just different ways of describing stuff like Airbnb or Uber, right? I mean, that, that's kind of what that is. Yeah, like services like ride sharing and dog walking or doing some odd job around the house, like anything that involves matching people who have these coincidental wants. So, for example, like say you need to spend the next hour working on a business proposal instead of walking your dog and I want to make some money during a spare hour. Like in a traditional marketplace, like both of those wants would probably go unmet for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. But with the internet, of course, and this is obvious, the instant access to a digital marketplace it provides, suddenly we can find each other and, and you can finish your proposal and I can walk your dog. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it actually kind of feels like a whole new kind of commerce, though, really, if you think about it. Yeah, and uh, so I, I think Tim really sums it up nicely when he says this, and this is a quote. Uh, this function of matching people who have coincidental wants is among the most powerful ways the Internet is reshaping the economy. Platforms such as Uber, Airbnb, eBay, and TaskRabbit create real value. They tap into capacity that would have gone to waste. A spare room, a spare hour, a spare car seat. Uh, you know, thinking about this, though, it it makes sense. What you're saying makes sense. But it it, it kind of feels like the Internet is the real economy shaper here. So, so how does this relate to seller feedback? Yeah, so I actually wondered that, too. But, but it's all about trust, right? Like, w- without trust, you can't have a legitimate marketplace. And, and no one would be able to choose to do business with each other if we were all potential enemies. But, okay. but that trust, like the kind that traditional markets provide in the form of well-known brands or immovable storefronts or just personal relationships, that's so much harder to come by 
buy online. Okay, yeah. Or, or, or at least it was before eBay, right? Like, and, mm-hmm. and eBay really changed this. They introduced seller feedback to the world in 1997. And once people had a system that gave them reason to trust each other on the internet, they overcame their natural caution. And, and this new type of industry was off to the races. Uh, I guess we're celebrating the uh, 20th anniversary of seller feedback. Mm-hmm. I don't know why this isn't being talked about more. Actually, I saw this fact the other day. Do you know what the first item ever sold on eBay was? I don't know, like a, like a Pez dispenser? I knew you'd guess Pez dispenser. <laughs> That's a good guess, but it was actually a broken laser pointer. Was that your next guess? <laughs> It was this guy, Mark Frazier, that he was, he decided to take this $15 gamble or something like that because he was looking for one of these laser pointers for work. He was giving presentations all the time and he decided to try to find one that was broken and fix it himself so he could get a deal. And he, and he did. That's so crazy. Like, I, I don't think about laser pointers enough. <laughs> <laughs> you really don't. I meant to tell you that. I meant to have an intervention and tell you you need to think about those more. But see, it's, it's all about coincidental wants again, right? <laughs> right, right. And it, it's, it's a beautiful thing, but now it's time for something truly stunning. Are you ready for this, Mango? Uh, For the part-time genius fact off? Always. All right, since we've talked about some of the most influential inventions in modern times, we agreed for the fact off, and I hope you're still planning to do this, that we'd share some of our favorite ridiculous inventions that you know, maybe they won't revolutionize any industry, but we'd still kind of like to own them for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to start, and I want to talk about the mobile toilet paper dispenser. Okay. Uh, have you seen this? I have not. It's this old Japanese invention of, like, headgear with a toilet paper roll over your head, and you just pull it down, like, when you need to blow your nose. Right. Like, I, I want to strap them to my kids so badly. <laughs> wow. So you go, if you've got this helmet on, I guess you can go anywhere with it. Definitely. Okay, what a great anywhere. invention, I guess. <laughs> I guess I can get behind that. All right. Well, I'm going to go with the dog umbrella. I mean, honestly, I may order one of these. So when I take our dog out and it's raining, I try to hold the umbrella over both of us. But usually that just results in me getting wet. I mean, there's no <laughs> way to do this effectively. And of course, these like doggy ponchos and things like that are kind of silly. So the dog umbrella has this rod that serves as a leash, but with an umbrella on the end of it. So you can keep your pup dry. It's pretty smart. I, right? I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's no sneezing on the go. No, but. <laughs> no that's right. <laughs> so, so the next thing I want is like one of these hand choppers, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I love chopping veggies, but I'm terrified of sharp knives. So, right. this is basically a zombie hand where you hold the rubber fingers where your fingers should go on the edge of a carrot or whatever, and then you chop away. It's like outsourcing a hand. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Except you've got to use your hand to make that work. All right, mm-hmm. but that's still that's still pretty interesting. Okay. All right. Well, the next one I was going to come up with was the chork. And it's chopsticks <laughs> at one end and a fork on the other, which is just brilliant. Or maybe it's stupid. I don't know. But I just like <laughs> saying chork. So I'm going to yeah. get one of these. <laughs> so speaking of stupid, I, I want one of these ham doggers. It's a mold with a press to make hamburger meat into hot dog shapes. And it's called a, a ham dogger? Is that right? <laughs> yeah. But you don't even eat hot dogs, man. I know. Or hamburgers. <sighs> but it's called a ham dogger. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're willing to buy a ham dogger, I'm going to have to give you this week's Fact Off trophy. And I, I, I can't wait for our next cookout. <laughs> thank you. And uh, thank you all for listening. See you next time. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. 
Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? the question diamonds direct has an offer you can't miss this month only buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at two thousand dollars imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once no one provides education selection and value like diamonds direct your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at diamonds direct won't last long details at diamondsdirect.com your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those, too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And. Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer.